Okay, so, so I'm delighted to be here with Professor Mahinda Digali. Um, we've just come out of our workshop on, on silence, looking at um, post-conflict post commemoration and silence. So in your introduction to Buddhism, conflict and violence in modern Sri Lanka, um, you state that the modern challenge for Buddhists is to demonstrate that the Buddhist message can transform violent contexts into more creative, positive actions um, that are suitable for creating genuine peace. Can you give some examples, perhaps, of, of Buddhist communities um, or um, yeah, Buddhist uh, initiatives, I suppose, so where, where people have successfully harnessed the transformative potential of Buddhist values? One of the problems in the Vedya or South Asia, Southeast Asia, increasingly, the societies have become very pluralist in terms mm -hmm. of ethnicity, uh, religion, and so on. So, uh, one of the drawbacks in the tradition, we're still trying to hold on to the early traditions in the text and certain practices which were much older. And we have not been able, we haven't systematically thought how we apply these to current situations. Because the current situations are different. Some are post-colonial. Mm -hmm and some are also increasingly connected with external economies uh, and, and this Buddhism is not functioning of its own society by itself. So, so application of Buddhism has been problematic and so violence has erupted in many parts of the world. And now violent, violence cannot be a part of Buddhism. You know, it cannot be justified. You know, so uh, so the Buddhist attitude should be compassion and, and embracing everybody and giving respect for everybody. But what you see is that because of other reasons like uh, uh, land and you know other resources and so on, persecutions occur against minorities as well as even within the majority persecutions occur. So now the challenge is that. Whether we like it or not, the violence is a fact of life. So the Buddhists have to uh, find ways to deal with it. And of course, certain outspoken groups, uh, perhaps we call it extremist, mm -hmm. you know, they have they have spoken very loudly uh, against the minorities. But within Buddhist tradition, the senior monks, uh, the people who are who have power and also who are thoughtful, haven't really developed a counteracting or, or mechanism to counter those uh, negative tendencies. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So now your question with regard to how we try, that's why I wrote that one, we need to create your engagement, because it's a new situation, it's not something, a situation that Buddha anticipated. It's different mm -hmm. challenges, so we have to do different. So now, creative areas, I think, come with certain individuals, like the monk that I mentioned in the morning, like, for example, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh of the Vietnamese tradition in, in Prague. You know, he's actually, even though uh, he also could be very aggressive and, and anti Chinese, but relatively he 
uh, says that we should not compromise our compassion and kindness. You know, that's very strong and very powerful. And uh, those are the two individuals we can talk about. And then uh, the monk passed away like Mahagoshananda uh, in uh, in Cambodia, mm-hmm. these are individuals. And then in Sri Lankan case, a lay person called Ari Ratna, who is the founder of uh, Sarvo there, you know, who is genuinely trying to bring the people, communities together, it has a base. And then some of the monks who passed away, like Venerable Sobita and Venerable Bellangvila and so on, in Sri Lankan case, they try to have a very cordial relationship with minority religious leaders, you know, kind of interfaith platforms and so on. But I mean, these are, these are only the public figures, but there are, in the local level, the many individuals in the individual capacity, as well as uh, in terms of temples, they are helping, but they don't get the publicity or they are not outspoken enough to counter the extremist voices that come uh, 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 surface on the media. Mm. But the thing is that even then, I think there's more work to be done. You know, what we are doing is not enough. Yeah. So I suppose that brings me on to, to my next question. I'm, I'm interested very much in the broader role of, of Buddhism in a post-conflict society, but um, you were talking there about um, interfaith groups, and I, I, want, I wondered, you know, what can Buddhism do specifically to, to help facilitate reconciliation between communities of different faiths um, in a post-conflict situation? I think, uh, I mean, the here post-conflict situation applies strictly to Sri Lanka. Mm. I think uh, <clears throat> this is an area that needs a lot of work, but actually, uh, see, we can prescribe that Buddhism should do this or that, but in reality it doesn't work because as a state Sri Lanka doesn't have a solid policy on dealing with them because interfaith can go to, to a certain level and then after that it cannot move. So like you know, the political situation like issues of language, issues of land and issues of freedom to move and, and all sorts of issues are there and they have to be addressed by the government uh, or the government or administration. It has not been done. Uh, or not done. It doesn't matter which religious tradition is, whether it's a Hindu, Christian or Muslim, other than the Buddhists, even though they try hard, it cannot go further. Because what interfaith work could do is kind of having a more cordial context can be created that, you know, kind of public decency they can create it. But then still there are burning issues about, you know, there's no reports of the people who disappeared and there's, you know, people who have not been tried, who are accused of you know, committing violence, and then if the people are still in the shelters rather than in their own homes and so on, there are serious So, so the interfaith work in a post-conflict area is a problem, essential one, essential one to do. But it has go only to a certain extent unless the the, the wider framework political system is positive, mm-hmm. and that's where I think Sri Lanka has has to work on, I think. It's, uh, the government also should be supportive and prepare uh, good structures. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and in your writings, you actually refer quite a lot to the, to the ethical and academic responsibility of Buddhist scholars. And so, so what do you see as, as the responsibility of Buddhist scholars in terms of setting out the path to transformation yeah, and reconciliation? The, I think you are raising a very important question uh, as a heritage of the colonial legacy. Uh, our universities in Sri Lanka, and I'm talking about here in particular when the focus on Sri Lanka, the good universities, good scholars, they are doing some good work, but their perspective of scholarship is very narrow, uh, either textual or old-passion, but not really focused on contemporary issues. See, the like ethnic, ethnic issue or religious issue is a contemporary one. And you need a more nuanced response to this. And so the scholars, like in, in Buddhist studies, for example, even the university courses are not developed on the issues of human rights and things like that. So that's a, that's a really drawback. And then the universities have not contributed at all to the, uh, the, the resolution of the conflict or the forced conflict area. Because the universities are the elite institutions and the you know, academics are the people who have the resources and the time to think about. But when you think about Sri Lanka, the universities have not, I remember, or 2013, uh, the University Grants Commission, that's the apex body of uh, government organizing that control the universities, had a meeting in Jaffna University uh, to talk about the reconciliation. It was also not very successful because some of the Jaffna University people didn't like that idea because it's a government you know, kind of instituted mechanism, so it did not go through. So, th so actually, the intellectual contribution is absolutely nil mm. in the post-complex situation. That's maybe also partly one of the reasons reconciliation is not successful, because because as professionals they should have actively contribute. So there should be more programs about the post-rehabilitation. Mm conflict resolution and, and also think about how to prevent conflict. Mm. You know, now we are in the verge of having a crisis with Muslims, you know. Because mm. these should, the academics should think ahead, you know, sh should plan ahead and the government ministry should think ahead and organize systematic framework, not only for universities but even for schools, you know, kind of because if you start from primary school, secondary school, and the universities, we can expect in 10 years or 20 years, the situation could get better. Mm. And uh, I think the academics have neglected mm. on, on the overall the issue of uh, rehabilitating the country. And, and what about scholars such as yourself then, working outside of Sri Lanka, working elsewhere around the world? Yeah, I, I have tried to kind of have some workshops and publications, mm -hmm. uh, like in Singhala and the Tamils. And as outsiders, we have, can do very little. There's a strong suspicion that, not about us, but in, on the road, these conflict societies, they're always the outsiders from who come to the situation are always suspect. So I think the initiative has to come from inside, you know, kind of, because we can support them, 
But when that initiative is not there inside, within the system, it's not very sustainable. Uh, and that's actually one of the serious problems, like, you know, uh, like the university administration, university professors, the government, they should be, have a more uh, productive framework and then, then the support will come not only people like us but even international bodies. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of, this requires us to rethink, you know, what we have done within last, analyze what went wrong and then how, how, how to clear a path to, for positive reconciliation. But inside Buddhism there are many teachings which can be useful like uh, inclusivity and respect for the people and so on. And this also needs to be uh, uh, communicated to the people. It has not been a priority, but I think that Buddhist scholars has to give a prominence, you know, adaptability of these teachings to modern context. Yeah, thank you. And so my final question, and I wanted to come back to the theme of our discussion from today's workshop. Um, obviously, we've been talking about silence, which is very prominent in commemoration in Western cultures. But I'm interested in understanding how silence is used and what it signifies um, specifically during commemorative activities in Buddhist communities. So what form or forms does silence take and what, what is its purpose? I think uh, the Buddhists in general prefer silence over noise. Mm -hmm. That's general then. And, and there's a kind of tendency to bear the pain rather than let it out. Uh, so this uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, traditional thing. And then, silence is very integral to Buddhism because, you know, in your practice in meditation, basically, you are silencing your whole body, basically, thinking and, and, and having a more accurate reflection, observation of your activities. So silence is very crucial. Now, of course, in... Uh, state-sponsored commemorations. The commemorations similar are similar to commemoration that we will wit witness in London, for example, because there's a kind of usually military and statements and so on. They have a kind of similarity. And so, uh, so the silence is there as the pain respect. But anyway, even in funerals and so on, silence is an important feature. And, and uh, so what is difference is that the silence is in the Buddhist context in, in the commemorations are more a reflective one and kind of thinking about the persons who passed away, you know, kind of the legacy they had and, and, and the good things that they have done to society, for the progress of society and so on, thinking it and also ref, uh, being thankful, giving thanks. And then important one, the death is important. This is, you know, this is inevitable. But when uh, death occurs, it's a kind of burden or responsibility of the living to pave the path of that person to a better world. So, uh, so the rituals are organized for that, which, which Buddhists call it transfer of merit. So we could understand it like uh, giving good skills or preparing toolkits for the journey to the next world. 
So, so that's how the commemorations are done. And then even meditation, even though it's a personal thing, but the benefits that you accrue, you can be transferred to the departed one. Mm -hmm. And as human beings, we have to uh, take care of the departed ones. You know, they have to look after their well-being. That's very important uh, Buddhist commitment. Mm. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you very that's much. Enough? Yeah, thank okay. you very much for talking to me today and for, what, wonderful. for your yeah. participation. Mm.